This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host, Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Here's a question to start the podcast for you. Would you spend $52,000 for a new computer for your station? Uh, No, me neither. But that is the selling price, believe it or not, of a fully tricked out Mac Pro computer. Now, Adrian Kingsley Hughes over at ZDNet has a good article about the Mac Pro, and he makes the point that $52,000 is not as grossly overpriced as it may sound. As Adrian says, the price tag buys a lot of top-notch hardware. The CPU, for example, by itself is a 2.5 gigahertz, 28-core Intel Xenon W processor. And the computer is also packed with 1.5 terabytes of RAM and a spectacular dual Radeon Pro Vega 2 video card. Now, (laughs) I think I've got a good video card. You've seen nothing yet. Uh, (laughs) The computer also has, if all that wasn't enough, a 4 terabyte solid state hard drive. Now, the most significant part of all that hardware, as you would expect, is the RAM. Going from its base, now this is the base for the Mac Pro, of 32 gigabytes, and then upgrading to the 1.5 terabyte option adds $25,000 to the price, not including the fact that 1.5 terabytes of RAM requires upgrading to the 24 or 28 core processor, from which the base price adds six grand and seven grand to the amount, respectively. Is $25,000 a lot for RAM? Not really. That much high-speed memory, and we're talking about truly high-speed memory here, can easily set you back $18,000. So $25,000 is not all that much out of the ballpark. Now, I'm not making the case that we should all go out and upgrade our station computers for $52,000. I mean, after all, most of these machines will go to research and business anyway. But just when you hear people saying, what are those guys at Apple thinking when they read this story? It kind of helps to keep the costs in perspective. I'm speaking with Jeremy Turner, N0AW, and Jeremy has done some really interesting stuff with uh, his Alexa virtual assistant, things that I really didn't think were possible. This all started with an eclectic technology column in QST that we published several months ago. And I was concerned about the possibility of using voice recognition in amateur radio applications. And I invited the readership to submit any examples of work they have done, applications, and so on. So Jeremy contacted me and revealed that he had been developing some applications for the Alexa. And Jeremy, um, you called them I guess they call them skills. Is that correct? That is correct. And what is a skill? I mean, is it just an application in the sense of being uh, lines and lines of code or what? Maybe lines of code on the back end. I'm not, I'm not quite sure why they chose the word skill. It's really um, a feature or a functionality. There, And there's a couple different kinds. Like there's the ability to do sort of a news report where on the back end, it's not so much code. Maybe it just plays you like an MP3 file or a WAV file um, that generates itself. 
or there's real-time information like uh, for, for parks on the air or for other skills that, that invoke an API and get real-time data back in. Okay. And this is two skills that you mentioned. This is something you created yourself, correct? That's correct. And the two skills you mentioned, uh, parks on the air, was the other one, I believe, ionospheric conditions? Is that right? Yes, yes. Uh, th- that was the first one I worked on. Actually, the, the very first one I, I wanted to work on was to look up someone by their call sign. And I found that tricky based on the available options. And this was maybe two years ago, uh, back in uh, 2018 or so. Based on the options that were available, it was really tricky to go that route. Um, there's a small set of words that you can use that Alexa knows about. And so having variable data is a little tricky uh, for it to identify it. So known words or known commands are a lot easier. Uh, anyway, so the call spine didn't really work very well, but the ionospheric conditions, because there's no there's no other input that you need to to provide to it, was a much easier skill to write. Okay, and when it comes to writing skills, is this something you think, Jeremy, that any ham could do, or are you particularly well versed in this kind of writing? There's probably two answers: yes and no. In the beginning. A lot of the Alexa skill development was code on the back end. So this was writing, for me, it was Python. For some others, it might be uh, Node.js or Google Go or some other type of a language that to actually write the code to, to do the skill. But since, you know, since in the last couple of years, they have released blueprints. So if you want to make a, uh, if you want to make a game, Pick the right answer, or if you want to do other ways where you interact with the skill, you don't have to write code. And your skills, by the way, that you have out there, they're free, correct? That is correct. They are they are free. So, in other words, any amateur who's listening to this podcast who happens to have an Alexa can install, is that the right way to put it, one of your skills? Yes. I believe the term they use is uh, enable the skill. And so you can you can turn that skill on and, and use it. In my February Eclectic Technology column, of course, we address all of this. And I put in links, Jeremy, to your skills in particular to try to direct people to where they can find that on Amazon. Would it be possible for you to uh, give a demonstration of one of your skills? We'll take a minute here to boot up doing some of our meetings with our, our Parks on the Air group. It's funny as we as we talk about Alexa device, turning it on when we don't mean to, and then, oh, no, wait, Alexa, stop. I will say there are different uh, wake words. So by default, it is Alexa. You can change that echo or computer. If you sound like Star Trek, you can have it do that. Cool. So for us, we can say, Alexa, open Parks on the Air. Welcome to Parks on the Air. This is taking like it's spots and help. Get spots. In the last 30 minutes, I found six spots. Killer Uniform 8 Tank Club, Activating Kilo Force, 7,181.2 Oh, that's very cool. And again, anybody can install this and have access to that information just by asking Alexa to produce it. Exactly. Um, you can. Uh, say, um, Alexa, um, 
enable parks on the air and it will turn on and enable that that skill well thank you very much jeremy i appreciate you taking time out of your day to demonstrate this this is uh this is very impressive. Absolutely. I think it's great. It's a different interface. It's a different way to interact with the data, and I think it's exciting what the future holds for us. If you heard the last podcast, you know that I was talking with Carl Luchelswab, K9LA, and we were discussing the current solar cycle and the prospects for the future. And part of that entailed a discussion of the sun's activity at this point and what causes flares and so on and so forth. Now, of course, as hams, we're waiting for the sun to become active again. We're waiting for more sunspots. But if there's one creature on the planet that may not be waiting for more sunspots, it's the whale. I kid you not. I stumbled across a study conducted by the Society for Integrative and Comparative Biology. And what is fascinating about this is that they believe that sunspots, or more appropriately, the intense radiation from the sun, when there are a lot of sunspots, as we know very well, apparently cause whales to sort of go off the rails, if you will. In other words, it causes them to lose track of where they are and then they end up stranding themselves on beaches. They did this research by studying a group of gray whales as they swam north up the coast of Baja, California, to the cool, rich waters of the Bering Straits. And the whales usually make their return trip south beginning in November, but occasionally a seemingly healthy gray whale strands itself while it's on the way. Now, there are a lot of reasons, of course, why a whale might strand itself, and one possibility is that the whale made a uh, what you might call a navigational error because something was disrupting the Earth's magnetic field or the whale's ability to detect it, like a solar storm or solar magnetic activity, for example. Of course, this finding alone doesn't explain how a sunspot could possibly cause a gray whale to get lost. The ability for animals to find their way using the Earth's magnetic field is called magnetoreception, They know that uh, some birds can do this. Nobody's quite sure if whales can truly do this, but the results are certainly interesting. And the prospect that increased solar radiation, increased solar activity, could cause these whales to go off the rails again has an interesting implication for the future of solar activity and how it might relate to biology. Is it ham radio and radio exactly? Not really, but still pretty fascinating, and it's eclectic. We have a new satellite coming our way here, probably in just a few months. If all goes well, AMSAT's, and this is a mouthful, RAD-FX-SAT-2-FOX-1E satellite will finally reach orbit. FOX-1E is going to feature a 30 kilohertz wide linear transponder for single sideband CW, and it's going to have a 2-meter uplink and a 70-centimeter downlink. What I find particularly intriguing about this uh, particular mission to space is that it's going to be riding on a Virgin Orbit aircraft. Now, you've probably heard of Virgin Atlantic Airlines. Virgin Orbit's part of the same company, and what it is is they have an airliner, a 747, in fact, that is tricked out to basically take rockets to very high altitudes. 
where they're ultimately launched into space. The rocket itself is called Launcher 1, and it's slung right under the 747. They drop it away, ignite the engines, and away it goes. By the way, the plane is called Cosmic Girl. I'm on the telephone with Ward Silver, N0AX, and if that's not a familiar call sign to you, you haven't been reading ARRL books because Ward has written many of them uh, and has edited the handbook, the antenna book. He edits our licensing books. In fact, he's currently working on the extra class license manual. Uh, he wrote the very popular grounding and bonding book and has been in QST for oh many years. Good morning, Ward. Good morning, everybody. The reason I have you on the horn here, though, is Hamsai, because I have a feeling a lot of people listening to this podcast have no idea what Hamsai is. Can you start by explaining that? Sure. Uh, Hamsai, H-A-M-S-C-I, is short for Ham Science Citizen Investigation or Initiative, and um, it was an outgrowth of a group that was formed to study the 2017 total solar eclipse and see what effect it had on the ionosphere and HF signals. And one thing led to another, and pretty soon we realized this was a real opportunity for allowing amateurs to support professional research at um, universities and other institutions. And it's developed into a big website now, hamsci.org, and it includes both professional researchers and technically-minded, scientifically-minded um, amateurs that interact in various experiments and um, other programs. We're developing a thing called the Personal Space Weather Station, which we can talk about in a minute. But basically, if you're interested in the geophysics of it all and the ionosphere and things like that, that's where the HAMSI folks are hanging out, and it's um, its taken off. Isn't there a HAMSI website or a HAMSI uh, group, if I'm not mistaken, online? Yes. Yes, HAMSI.org, H-A-M-S-C-I.org is the homepage, and that will explain uh, the projects, the groups, the topics of interest, and we have a lot of regular um, uh, folks that are just participating in amateur radio. Some aren't even hams. They're just interested. And then we have a whole bunch of professional, professional-grade researchers, uh, people that work at places um, like uh, MIT Haystack Observatory, um, various national labs, universities, all that kind of thing worldwide. I want to know about this weather station. This intrigues me, the space weather station. The um, personal weather station sort of took off with a lot of these packages that um, companies like Davis and Pete were putting out where they could measure several different uh, regular atmospheric weather things like rainfall, temperature. And then software was developed to allow that to be reported to a central server, and you can put on your uh, put your weather station online and become the weather underground station for podunk uh, connecticut if you want and so um, the idea was brought up 
that maybe we could do the same for space weather, which if you go to spaceweather.org, um, you can see a lot of different parameters that are um, are measured and displayed there. Could an individual amateur measure some of these things? Well, sure. Um, we've got the reverse beacon network that automatically decodes signals. We can measure things like um, digitized spectrum. One of the um, instruments that's been suggested is a magnetometer that measures the Earth's magnetic field. All these things can be collected just like for regular atmospheric weather and then reported to a central data collection point or system, and then the professional researchers can look look at that. And what that gives them is um, a tremendously larger number of places where things are measured and data points than they've ever had before. Usually they'll have a half dozen recording stations or something, but this has the potential to put measurement stations all around the world many, many, many different places. And the better you can see what's going on in the upper reaches of the atmosphere, the better you can understand uh, the mechanics of it. And so they're very excited about this. And that's under development right now. So are there any uh, prototypes actually active at this point? It's being developed. Um, There's a development group called Tangerine, like the orange, Tangerine SDR, uh, if you uh, do an internet search for that, you'll find the, the website. It's a public effort. And yes, so there's a prototype in development. It's not ready for uh, release yet. It's uh, being developed uh, with the software and the firmware and things like that. There's uh, software being developed by uh, University of Alabama to collect the data. And I think we're, we're making pretty good progress. I can't give you a date as to when these things are going to be available, but um, watch uh, the HamSci website and the Tangerine web, uh, SDR.website, and um, you'll be able to keep an eye on it. Do you have even a rough idea of what this might cost? Uh, we're trying to keep it under um, a few hundred dollars for the full featured package. The standalone instruments, for example, the magnetometer are pretty simple, and that would be we're aiming for something like 150 bucks. So um, you can buy one of these things and put them out there. With it'll have a Raspberry Pi or something in it, and that will take care of all the the software. So everything from standalone bits and pieces to a full-featured research-grade SDR are out there. We're trying to keep it affordable so that people can do this uh, without you know, making a big investment. With the experience that most hams have, as a group, amateurs are ideally suited to do this. Yes, and amateurs have been doing this kind of data collection project uh, for about 100 years. We were heavily involved in the original listening test conducted by the Naval Lab that helped establish that there was, in fact, this thing called the ionosphere. They called it the heavy side layer at the time. But, frankly, nobody really knew. So they needed a lot of different stations to make these um, recordings, uh, to record observations and then report them. Um, And they didn't have enough professional and military facilities, and so they used the amateurs. And there have been a number of programs like this through the through the ages, 
that amateurs have supported the professional research community. And so there are going to be lots and lots and lots of opportunities. Um, ionospheric geophysics has uh, surged back uh, into the forefront of research because people are now interested in HF communications again. We've got um, solar phenomena that are happening, climate change. All these different things require better knowledge of what's going on in the upper atmosphere. HAMS are perfectly positioned to do this. There's a lot of people that are motivated. They pay attention to details. They make really high-quality reports. And uh, the PAMSI group and the Personal Space Weather Station are ways that we can contribute and really make a difference, make an impact. That's excellent. Thank you very much, Ward. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.